The semantic web was an effort to mark up web pages with facts about their content. The dream was to enable computers to understand the world by reading these web pages and potentially also enable smart agents that could automatically take action on that data. If anybody's to take the crown of and title of Web3, it's probably the current crypto crowd because they're trying to design systems with the correct incentives for a lot of different parties so that the entire thing would work. And because they had to do it from the beginning with an even stronger financial incentive, they've had to like work the stuff out and design what they call the uh, token economics. So the crypto people definitely are, are way, way savvier with with the sort of stuff and uh, maybe if they did semantic web from the from in the nine late 90s and 2000s we, we'd end up with something hey this is Sri, and this is will welcome to the technium where we talk about the edge of technology and what we can build with it an optimistic look at the road ahead hey will how's it going hey Sri, how's it going with you i I think I'm okay. My voice is a little hoarse today, but other than that, I am good. So hopefully I'll last through this uh, podcast, but I think we can uh, run through it. But I have the original kelp flavor of Calpico, and this is kind of a kind of a citrusy, yogurty drink from Japan, and its original name was Kelpis, which obviously wouldn't fly here, so they rebranded it to Calpico, which if you get a chance, I would suggest trying it. It's pretty good. That's cool. On my end, I have this Lagunitas Hop Water. It is a beer-flavored beverage that is calorie-free and alcohol-free, so you get all the taste and aroma of beer, but uh, actually none of the effects. Really? I've never really gravitated towards the taste of beer. It took me a <laughs> long time, long, long time to appreciate the, the flavor of beer. You have to drink a lot of it. So uh, apparently this is for people that already got there. And they're yep. kind of at, at the Jedi curve, Jedi part of the curve for like taste of beer, I guess. So Yeah, it, it's definitely a niche product for a niche market. Right. Uh, I don't know. We'll see. I'm not, I'm not a big super fan of beer or anything, but yeah. We'll <laughs> so what are we talking about this week? This week, we are talking about the semantic web. The semantic web was an effort to mark up web pages with facts about their content. The dream was to enable computers to understand the world by reading these web pages and potentially also enable smart agents that could automatically take action on that data. So it was basically an effort to make the world's web pages easier for machines to understand so that they can make the users' lives easier. Yeah, I remember this era because I think this was around the time when I I guess came of age, you could say, or like started coming out into industry. And there was a lot of talk of the semantic web. And my my sense at the time was this is really complicated and I don't really want to learn it or I don't know where to make heads or tails of it. So I guess maybe I'm just kind of dumb. And so I'll, I'll do something else in the meantime. But But apparently the semantic web came and went. And I think nowadays, I feel like if something's more complicated than what I can kind of figure out that I'm like, oh, this is probably not going to work. <laughs> so, so, but yeah, like what, what about you? Do you, do you have any sense of, did you live through that kind of heady era of the semantic web? I think I was still early on in my career or not in my career. I, I was still growing up, but I was sort of a, a nerdy kid. And so I was following along without knowing too much about it. Oh, okay. So also just to just to clarify for our listeners, this is a retro episode. So oh, uh, right, this right. is <laughs> another <laughs> retro worry. episode. 
Yeah, don't worry. It's not like you're. It's yet another JavaScript front end framework that you haven't heard about. <laughs> you're like, I gotta yes. look this stuff up. Yeah, this is a retro <laughs> episode. Congratulations, yep. you can rest on your laurels now. Laurels now, so don't, don't yes. worry about it. Just to sort of situate us in time, I think the semantic web was happening around the early to mid two thousands, if I remember uh, yeah, correctly. It's somewhere around there, yeah. Yeah, and so this was this was at a time when I think dot com era was done right like uh, there was the bust but then there was increasing sort of rise of blogging mm, rss yes. different variants of like semantically correct html or markup and this kind of thing yeah like the big the big startup at the time was like blogger and movable type and people were all about having backlinks and blog roles to link to each other's blogs and yep. that, that was kind of the era and it was almost like Flickr-ish, but pre-Flickr, maybe like Flickr came up at around the end of the semantic web sort of thing, and like uh, delicious for those of you that remember, like Folksonomy and like yes. was it the the tags and whatnot. So that that's yeah. where tags started. But yeah, we're we're not talking about that. Maybe we'll make that sort of stuff another retro episode. But anyways, yeah. that 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 was when things were coming on the up and up, and the vision of semantic web, like Shri just said, was that if people marked up their web pages with meaning then we could finally get intelligent agents to trawl the web for us to do our bidding no matter where our data was on the web and so i think it is a pretty seductive vision and i yeah. would have to say even today it's pretty seductive even though i think a lot of people have been burned by semantic web there's still some hardcore people out there still like working on it so yeah yeah exactly it is a very broad-reaching vision of what computers can do and just to give a specific example, when we are talking about marking up web pages with you know facts and meaning, uh, a good example is let's say that you are the owner of a restaurant and you maintain your restaurant's website. Then you can imagine that to a human, it's they're they're able to navigate around your uh, website and find things like your menu, your uh, opening hours, the type of cuisine that you serve, et cetera, et cetera. But at that time uh, that we're talking that is not possible that was not possible for machines to comprehend so the idea was that as the maintainer of a individual websites they would add some markup that was not visible to the user but was part of the html markup structure that would say okay this is this is a opening hours time or this is the name of the restaurant or whatever right. this or is the location. this is the uh, this is the address so that the intelligent agent can tell you like where to drive to if if you yeah. make a reservation or something. See that's where you went wrong because like restaurant websites were horrible then and they're horrible now. <laughs> so I yeah. can't imagine them like doing like even extra work to to put markup on there. I, I don't know. But anyways, go on. Yeah. Yeah, no. So that that's what we mean by the, the facts. This all was happening at this this period of the history of the web where the belief was that the web would be increasingly, I guess, participatory, that people would maintain blogs, maintain web pages. It was kind of this idea of the open web. This was before a lot of these aggregators, content aggregators like Yelp, Facebook, and Twitter started to subsume a lot of the information onto their walled gardens. Yeah, like Facebook did not exist in this period. Google did. But their whole business model was getting people to other pages. So it wasn't yet a time where people were like aggregating content on their own sites. And so the idea was that these intelligent agents, if like the websites of restaurants were marked up with like what the address was and what the phone number was, then you can say to your agent, oh, I want to book a table 
and then they could go to different websites and get, like say go to a chauffeuring website to like gather the information and set the appointment and match it up with the times that are available on the the, the restaurant like what open tables mm -hmm. are available and that sort of thing and and because all that data is out there for agents to read and parse and put together then they could do the sort of work for you and for reasons we'll get to later in this episode that's not the web that we got and and <laughs> turned out so but but that was the the vision of the the smart agents and the intelligent agents browsing the semantic web and yeah so that, that hopefully that gives a clear idea of where people's heads were at at the time yeah so you know the semantic web started out with that grand vision and its trajectory was not you know it did not meet those expectations i think it's safe to say uh, and we yeah we can definitely go into the into the reasoning for that but but i think some things that immediately seem obvious now in retrospect are the fact that just the trajectory of the web took a very different turn where people were no longer you know, the webmasters, as they used to call them, of their you know uh, own uh, website for their restaurant or for uh, their own blog, a lot of the content was pushed onto platforms, and it's generally not in the interest of of those platforms to open up that content moat, right? So they they want as many people like Yelp would prefer that rather than you have a smart agent that is booking you know tables at restaurants using the open web. I think it's a better revenue model for Yelp to provide that service for you and charge a commission to the restaurants or whatever. And so I think that the shape of the web changed. And then I think there were also a lot of mismatches between the idealism of the semantic web pioneers and their beliefs in the you know incentives that people had in order to participate in this versus like I, actual I wouldn't be so, in reality. Yeah, I wouldn't be so diplomatic. When I read back this, I was just like, they're just completely naive about it. And so, so maybe, maybe, yeah, maybe it's a good thing you're you're running the show on this episode because I just, <laughs> when I read, I'm like, I lived through it early in my career, didn't really quite pay attention, but when you go back and read it, you're like, ah, oh, shaking my head. So, <laughs> yeah, I'm, I have I have a little bit of a of a soft spot slash can't trash these folks too much because I actually some of my Coworkers on a former team that I've worked on were very much steeped in this. They didn't necessarily work on the semantic web, but they were part of that whole culture. And so I understand where they're coming from. But yeah, I no, I mean, I, I think I think uh, the the idea itself is not flawed. I think what's flawed is the lack of understanding of how other actors would work in such a system. Because in like a closed centralized system where you can control like the flow of information that you or like the the graph where you can like add and delete nodes it totally like it's it's not a problem and then so you can focus on like kind of the academic computer sciencey part part of the problem yeah. but like when you release it to the public like as we now know on the internet like there's all sorts of unsavory people saying unsavory things even if you meet them in person they're like perfectly amiable like there's a side of people that just likes it troll things i don't, I don't know yeah. what it is but but like that i think there's there was just a lack of understanding there and so i think that that's what it is but like for me personally i i also find the vision seductive but really like the it's it's that practical in order to get people to adopt things like there's a certain shape to how people adopt things and i think there was just no understanding of that at the time yeah yeah definitely and and this is something I think we'll dive much deeper on later in this conversation. Right. Just to give a little bit also more background about the mechanics of how the semantic web would work, you know, like I mentioned, 
there would be this invisible markup that was part of the HTML of these pages. It was written by the you know, owners of the web pages. And you can imagine this is a distributed effort, right? This is There's no central authority. Everybody is maintaining their own web pages and are responsible for marking up that content. And so there needs to be some standard by which you are able to specify. There needs to be a standard of what tags to use, what the structure, the data format, how you, for example, represent a date, how you represent currency. There sort of needs to be a way to normalize the data so that it's actually understandable by computers. Because, yeah. of course, if everybody could just mark up things however they wanted, then this would might as well just have been natural language. And so a big part of the semantic web was standardizing what we call you know taxonomies or ontologies, which are basically ways of representing the world. So you, know, you have like a way of representing currencies, you have a way of representing locations, and there are many, many other entities. I'm only giving a few primitive types, but you know, for example, in in some visions of the semantic web, you would be able to have a markup representation of a person, and like then you'd be able to say this is their name, this is when they were born, this is their yeah. spouse, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Have you uh, read some of these specs before? No, actually, I haven't. I, I, I've looked through them, and it's 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 not it's not fun reading, I guess. So there there are there was a spec called a friend of a friend, and they were trying to do semantic web for social networks. And you know, like the idea was that people would be able to publish lists of their friends, and then you could have a decentralized social network, and you can carry that with you to whatever service, like give permission to different services to use it. So and, unlike your blog or something, yeah, you have yeah. this like friend of a friend markup, and say these are all my right, friends. Right. Right. Okay. Right. And so, like, if you sign up for a service with an intelligent agent, then maybe it can, like, find all your, I don't know, friends that work at Google or something like that, right? Yeah. And, right. Or, and to, to get tech support help, right? <laughs> <laughs> right. I'm, I'm sure people would pay for that now. And <laughs> and uh, so, so uh, what do you call it? Where was I? Oh, yeah. So so that, that was, like, the idea. But, like, when you go read some of these specs, like, they have specs and then specs on the specs so that they eventually mm -hmm. are self-describing and it gets confusing really quickly but so yeah i, I were, were the specs also marked up so that uh, machines could read them yeah yeah like, the, like it was oh. all expressed in h in xml wow so okay it's, it's xml all the way down which yeah like yeah. in some ways xml is impressive in that it's kind of like ends up looking like a lisp with angle angle brackets so yep. yeah <laughs> yeah so like you're mentioning somebody had to write these specs for everybody to use and to agree upon what it means to represent different types of things in the world. Mm -hmm. And yeah. a lot of this was dependent on standards bodies and working groups of you know computer scientists and yeah. other types of folks as well, ontologists and, and these types of folks who were responsible for creating these, these very exhaustive specifications that then everybody would have to follow. And I think that there are varying opinions on the role of standards in software. And I think that... As in software protocols, and I think the current state of the world is almost like standards don't exist slash don't really matter much. <laughs> but I think this was at a time when people were very, very much trying to standardize everything and making, you know, semantically correct HTML, XHTML, all kinds of ways of standardizing the web. Yeah, I would say it's not everybody on the web because definitely there were people shooting from their hips at the time. I would say it's probably specifically people whose study is all about, I guess, how to organize information, like librarians, study of like 
categorizing things ontologists mm-hmm. i don't, I don't yeah. know Epi- epistemologist i can never say that word epistemologists yeah yeah something maybe yeah. did i get that right i have no idea so but yeah yeah, yeah, yeah yeah but but the idea is like oh okay the web worked so let's 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 do the full-blown version of the thing that we've been researching so yeah and so going back to what you were talking about then like that's that's kind of how how it was mechanically with the specs like did you did you ever try it out or like have you seen it in the wild uh back then yeah i was following some some of these uh, efforts and and actually the name friend of a friend i have i've never heard it said out loud slash said in its full form but like the yeah. acronym is fof right like F O A F. yeah and uh, i definitely remember seeing that because i was i was into blogging at that time mm-hmm. i think i was in high school or something and uh I was setting up like WordPress and there were like WordPress plugins and things for semantic web. And if you wanted these um, like pingbacks and, uh, you know, mm-hmm. faux uh, uh, markup and things like that. And so, yeah, I mean, I say, I would say I for not only have audience, I seen it. For our audience real quick, what's a pingback? I th- this was like a, a mechanism by which a website could uh, almost, to, to say, hey, I linked to your to your uh. web page and then you would have these these lists at the bottom of like at the, almost right above the comment section yeah. of the blog that said oh all like all of these things kind of referenced uh, this on the web right it's it's kind of a hack to get bi-directional links on the web for a blog so if somebody mentioned your thing you get links on your page that somebody mentioned your thing and so right how that links to semantic web is that like you get that like that invisible semantic markup of like what this stuff is so that hopefully some intelligent agent out there can make good use of it yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so anyway, I, I have seen it in the wild, but I've also, I suppose, participated in, in the semantic web in my own way as a person who ran a website around that time. Right, so, right, right. Yeah. I mean, I, as a person who uh, hosts a technology podcast slash likes to think about technology a lot, like, uh, I was enthusiastic because it seemed like a cool thing and... You know, it, I was yeah. I was nerding out on it, but yeah, no, I mean, I thought it was complex, but I thought it was me back then, and I also thought like, hey, you know, as a citizen of the web, like this, just put some stuff up, and hopefully some good stuff will happen. So maybe yeah. maybe this is the cynicism of 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 being a cantankerous technologist or engineer that's that's showing through because talk to any gray beard, which of which I'm not yet, you know, you you find them they're they're a little curmudgeon me, so. So then, are are there like where where did where were the roots for for like semantic web? Like did it have like I remember there's had some roots in AI. Is that the case? Yeah. yeah, I mean the idea of representing the world in terms of facts, sets of facts, is a, a very old idea rooted in in AI. And uh, our listeners might also remember something very similar with logic programming where we were talking about logic programming also being a system in which you can specify facts about the world and then uh, applying the logic rules it can make deductions or inferences about the world right so it's a very old idea and actually those those two camps are actually over overlap quite a bit like the the idea of ai being powered by these like bags of facts and uh, doing this type of symbolic manipulation of these facts is kind of the very beginning of, of, of AI. Yeah, Prolog is an old language. I forgot if it got started in the 60s or 70s, but like somewhere around there where people were still trying to figure out like, how do you program? And they took a cue from logic and came up with a logic 
programming languages and they it's it's surprisingly powerful when it's the right fit for the right problem and so but you'll also have to understand that back then there was no such thing as deep learning or like machine learning as we know it today because like at that time computers weren't powerful enough to chew through a whole bunch of data and run statistics on them and it wasn't that much data like at best they could collect like I don't know, what would you say? Maybe tens of thousands of data points to train on or something like that. It, yeah. was, it was tough and expensive. So like that wasn't the approach that people took. So there was a lot of work on symbolic AI in which you were able to represent things about the world and with, with some symbol in the system. Mm -hmm. And then through these rules and relationships, you can make inferences and deductions. And so, so that's yep. where the, like the AI roots uh, that we're talking about. It's not, it's not the deep learning stuff that yeah. we talked about, say in the <laughs> transformer episode or anything like that. Yeah, exactly. And yeah, in the history of, of AI, these two are sort of warring camps. Uh, there's symbolic AI versus yeah. statistical machine learning. And these two flavors of AI have each had their peaks and troughs. Uh, yeah. That is to say that symbolic AI was a considered a potential uh, viable approach to building these smart agents. And, uh, you know, like you said, symbolic AI runs on these facts. And uh, so the semantic web was, in effect, a distributed knowledge graph. So a knowledge graph are, are ways to store knowledge about the world for these uh, symbolic AI agents to run their inferences on. And you can think about all the markup on all of the world's web pages as being this distributed knowledge graph or, or set of facts. Yeah, so people figured, well, if people are putting all this data on the web, if only they marked it up, then we could have like a set of facts that people are just publishing in the web and they're linking them to each other. So if yep. all this stuff was annotated, then we could basically crawl the web as a way to run inferences on the thing. And that's yeah. that's where the idea of the intelligent agents come from. And so you could see technically it would work maybe. Like you, yeah. uh, I, don't, I don't know what the latency would be across like doing inference across a network like that, but but right. like at least in theory, it seems like it could be plausible, but. Like, yeah, yeah, and, yeah, and I think that the, the approach makes a lot of sense when you think about the fact that the web was growing at this point at a you know exponential rate, right? More content was being created day by day by day, right? And so, yeah. why not make use of this incredible content generation engine to distribute the work of describing the world? Because the alternative is that some centralized entity would have to collect all the facts about the world in a centralized knowledge graph, and that takes a lot of effort, a lot of human effort, as well as money and other types of resources. And so why not just you know, hand this job over to the people where everybody describes their own corner of the world, whether that's something about themselves or the business they run, or maybe they even annotate facts about you know, other, other entities that they have a, some interest in or something like that. Yeah, and you'll have to remember that at the time it was unclear why people would do this work in the first place also and it was like a completely <laughs> new idea that like there would be a thing called wikipedia where people would like just write stuff for free or like people would like voluntarily tag their own stuff and then you would have like a public tag uh public repository of other people that tagged other articles the same thing you tagged it as so you could yeah, yeah like or like people would write stuff on blogs for free and link to other and so this was kind of the world in which that was happening and people were really excited and they're like oh it's it seems like it lines up like 
Like the mm-hmm. only part we're missing is is if people would just annotate it with this metadata, then, then for we're all for good. machines, right? right for yeah. machines, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and and fun fact, we haven't mentioned this so far, but you know the era that you're talking about with the tags and the folksonomy and and all of the stuff, you know, Web 2.0, which is where people are writing back yeah. and contributing to the the web, and then the gap is of course that this is not parsable by machines, and so the idea is if you can take Web 2.0 and add annotations for machines that uh, this would be the web 3.0 so this was the og like original web 3.0 before its current use in in cryptocurrency and things like that i'm surprised it took us like 30 minutes to get to the fact that this was the og web 3 like it it, (laughs) the the term died long enough that it got co-opted by the cryptocurrency people i guess like i don't know maybe this is like i don't know it used to maybe yeah it was web 3.0 and people dropped the dot o yeah yeah (laughs) yeah (laughs) Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I mean, I wonder. I wonder how all the very, you know, principled and academic linguists and ontologists and and whoever was involved in the original Web 3.0 feel about the, the Web 3 folks coming and and sort of just taking that term and just using it for something that they probably are not big fans of. I don't know. <laughs> well, so how they should feel is they should understand that people in different domains would categorize different things with the same name and vice versa. I mean, that was one of the problems. That's their job, right? No, I mean, it's one of the things that I think contributed to the complexity of the semantic web because they assume that everybody would use the same schema, but like people talk about the same thing in different ways, depending on your domain, like the, yeah. the way that you might like categorize things completely is context dependent. And so they should be well aware by now that web, they would call like web three something else. So, right. Right. Uh, yeah. There's no, there's no namespace that you can right, right. You know, claim like <laughs> that. I, I own this, this name. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, so anyways, yeah. So, so that's kind of, I, I think uh, we spent a lot of time like painting the picture of what the context was like at the time, even though yeah. like we're relatively young, so we weren't like in the midst of it then, but like, I think we got more than enough of a taste to be able to tell you kind of like what, what was going on at the time. And so yeah. like, I think it, despite the, the, ribbing here like we we understand that like there are a lot of things that seem like they aligned and so i can see how people go down these sort of paths so yeah yeah we've given the the vision a a fair shake it's probably worth by now to to start thinking about well why why didn't this whole thing work right and i i I get the sense will that you in particular are have some strong uh, feelings about it so i don't (laughs) know i'll I'll put pass it to you What, what why do you think it didn't work well, so like, do you like when we did our pre gaming? Like, did you you were wondering if it actually failed? So like, I was like, I think it probably pretty much failed. Like, do you do you get a sense like establishing that in in the yeah. moment? Because I think there are definitely a lot of things that didn't work about it. Like, so like, I, I think it failed. Did you think it failed? I think that the the implementation, the the specific mechanism uh, of action, which is that you allow individual owners of content on the web to mark up facts about the world and use mm-hmm. that you know to to help machines failed uh, like undoubtedly this is not something that anybody in uh, you know 2022 or even in 2012 was doing anymore like that that ship is uh, passed the market did not take up on this idea mm-hmm. i think that i withhold a little bit of criticism and i'd say that i'll give credit that the the vision is still compelling, and I think that we can go over this, uh, you know, later on. Later, later, yeah. That like there are maybe ways that 
this vision can still be realized. And I mm -hmm. think that people, there are people who are working on this. And so, yeah, I won't say it's a complete failure, but uh, yeah, the specific implementation was a failure. Yeah, I, I would say that the the vision is still compelling even today, but like definitely the specific implementation is a failure. And yeah. I, and going back to your original question, like why do I think that it was a failure and like why, like what 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 the heck happened? And so I think, I mean, like for any technology adoption, there are definitely plenty of people that would say that, yeah, Alan Kay is fond of saying, you know, the guys that did TCP IP, geniuses, engineers, they knew what they were doing. The people that did the web, schmucks, total amateurs, but it's the easy stuff that gets adopted, you know, a lot of times. And so, I mean, HTML was really forgiving in the beginning. And so people just write whatever crazy ass markup and it browsers would do their best to interpret it rather than crash and so i think that's one of the things that really helped the adoption of the web because the authoring tools were forgive or the readers were so forgiving the readers yeah. and the browsers were so forgiving and so contrast that with this semantic web specifications uh like i mentioned earlier they were like it's a sprawling number of specifications and it's overly complicated like nobody wants to use a tool that can only be fully understood by reading a whole family of specifications and it doesn't <laughs> even make sense and so like a yeah. lot of times like people just want to get stuff done right they want to get in get out do my thing get in get out but like you're not going to spend time like reading specification but i think also in terms of like motivation we we're talking about like motivations of people i find that a lot of times it, or in the beginning the html had tags that affected the appearance or rendering of the thing and it took a while for people to kind of get used to the idea that the HTMLs for the semantics and the CSS is for the presentation. And so we have well, all sorts uh, of tags. You, you like, remember like the, one of the early tags of, of HTML was like the blink tag, right? Right, right, right. Yeah, <laughs> so yeah, you yeah. can see how they, that, what they were thinking, at least in the beginning. Right, the yeah. blink tag and the bold tag still exists. I haven't tried yeah. marquee in a long time, but I assume it's still in there somewhere. Yeah, it's probably still there, yeah. Right. And, and so, so, so in that world, I, I can see how people are way more motivated to bold something if they can see that it changed the appearance of their document. But like, if like you're talking about the semantic markup that's completely invisible, like there's no short-term feedback of like, like there's no dopamine hit that I did something, right? <laughs> Basically you're doing like some sort of like short-term work for unknown long-term gain because like people didn't exactly have concrete ideas of what exactly intelligent agents would do with this right. stuff they were just like let's just mark up all this stuff first and then let's figure out the intelligent once agents. we have the the pristine right. you know world of facts then we'll actually provide some value yeah and so it should have really been the other way around like have some like concrete things that people you know people want intelligent agents to do and then people will like start marking up stuff and so like like outside of that, there's there's just people are just generally lazy and it's through no fault of their own. Like you have to be incentivized to do stuff, whether it's ideologically, economically or something else. Right. It's just yeah. I mean, like this this laziness of people is bottomless, like no amount of ease of use will end it. And I, I don't fault them for it either. Right. Like you just yeah. I mean, like the example is actually Corey. What's this? Dr. O? That's yeah. he's like a writer on the internet about the internet and he started really early on and he called it back in like 1999 i think that like this metadata stuff is meta crap and so we'll put it in the <laughs> show notes but like he just gave all sorts of reasons why it wouldn't work and he made it a point to go to these like semantic web 
conferences and just troll those people about <laughs> like how it wouldn't work. Yeah. And so I, I won't go through each of his his points or whatever. You you can read it. But the, the short of it was he mostly pointed out to the, how there was a misunderstanding in the motivation of people and why they would do this sort of thing and like what what people naturally gravitate towards. Like, I just want to get my stuff up there. Like, I like yeah. what's the ROI for this thing? Right. So so I think that's I mean, that's we, yeah. we were talking uh, as the example of a restaurant owner marking up their web pages and stuff like that. And I don't know too many people who run restaurants, but from what I yeah. hear, it's a very stressful job and low margins yeah low margins yeah yeah and uh, a lot of them go out of business so i'm sure they have a lot on their mind and yeah. the last thing on their mind is doing community service for intelligent agents to do some fancy stuff that doesn't even exist yet right like why would they want to do that at all and, and not just restaurant owners but just anybody right everybody has jobs uh, to be done that's uh, what we get paid for we don't get paid to do community service to help the state of knowledge curation on the web. Yeah, and that's why I say there's a certain shape to like technological adoption. Like one, one of the often quoted thing is that like if your new thing is not 10 times better than like whatever it is along some very limited dimension, like people just aren't going to do it. Yeah, and so the the core and I would say like one of the core value props of the semantic web is the interoperability of data on the web. And like I think if aggregation theory by what's his face What's his name? Ben Evans? The Stratechery so, guy. Yeah, Stratechery guy, whatever his name is, yeah. was out there then. Then maybe it would be, but like uh, it took a while for us to like see aggregation theory, which I guess we'll put in the show notes also, that what the web provided these companies with was a way to get right next to the customer. So the people that are able to aggregate demand were the ones that are powerful because in businesses... Before the web, if you aggregated distribution, you were the one that was powerful. But now that the web flipped that on its head and distribution was free, then the hard part is aggregating demand. And so so when you aggregate demand, there's no reason for you to share that content that like everybody is providing to you for free. Like there's just no like the incentives aren't correct there. And so the yeah. the web is really has a better affordance for for that like uh, aggregation theory than than it is for like other things and so i think that's mm -hmm. another thing that kind of was a nail in the coffin for the semantic web because it, it didn't align with the affordance of what the web actually was like and so as a side note what's interesting about crypto is that you can think of data on the blockchain effectively as a large shared database and mm. so in some ways like it's achieved some of the vision of the semantic way web yeah. in a roundabout way like definitely they don't mm. quite have tags and stuff like that but like yeah. it's it's basically public data that that people are incentivized or they don't have a choice really because like all the data even data marked as private inside yeah. a smart contract is technically readable and to to anybody that really wants to get at it yeah. with the exception uh, there's of, actually an interesting yeah. effort tying the semantic web slash knowledge graph with with cryptocurrency and Web3, which uh, maybe we'll get to when we're talking uh, about like the current state of affairs and things. But yeah, yeah I, I agree though. The blockchain does capture some of that original vision, yeah. Yeah, yeah, although nobody ever talks about it in that specific way, because yeah. I think memes are more of a thing nowadays, so we would probably say it in a different way, probably with some yeah. cats rocketing to the moon on a Lambo or something like that. <laughs> so anyways, yeah, so, so I, I think uh, like all these things are 
killer. And as we kind of discussed in the Korba episode, usually with like a specific technology, there isn't one major thing that kills it. Uh, same thing with small talk. Like usually it's like a confluence of like a misreading of the medium that they're trying to deploy to along with some sort of like market shape or strategy that they failed to like capture. And, and it's, it's like death by a thousand cuts. And I, I think it's the same thing here. Yeah. 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 I think that it's just a fundamental misalignment with the realities and messiness of the world. Right. And it manifests in different ways, whether it's people being lazy or, or not understanding the economic incentives of content on the web and the the move towards walled gardens rather than this utopian open web many 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 other other things and i think i would say you mentioned tcp and it being championed as a you know pinnacle of you know technical achievement or or whatever yeah. if you think about MK mostly if you think about tcp or networking protocols or all of these things that have been achieved through working groups and specifications the fundamental difference is that the number of implementers for those protocols is limited so each vendor has to implement uh, those protocols so in the case of tcp every operating system let's say implements it once in their networking stack and then everybody else just uses it and so you only have to get the implementation right maybe five ten times that's it right if you think about the mm. open web Oh, and uh, getting yeah. everybody to coordinate on a common ontology and a, a common set of tags and things like that, it's a whole different ballgame, right? I mean, yeah. it's possible that there are vendors like you know WordPress or other web page markup tools that will help automatically standardize, it, like, right. standardize yeah. it. But I think that just the... There aren't only five or ten of those. There are, there are a lot of tools that people use to write content. Uh, so, uh, and so for all of them to support it, it... it it's, it's it's a kind of a different scenario than other types yeah. of standards. Yeah, I don't know. I, I know that at one point there were a lot of different OSs because like people would ship an OS with the machine. So if you bought the machine, you got a different OS. But yeah. I, I think that was like in the 50s where you have like the IBM system 360 there, and like C hadn't even been invented yet. So so yeah. um, like, and yeah, I, I think... I think we're not talking about that era right? for, for like the TCPIP stack anyway. So like once yeah. things like OSs got mature enough and then only there were a few survivors it was a lot easier to kind of get them to agree but like you said it would never work with the open web because the whole idea of an open web is that there would be many many people publishing yeah. websites and getting them all to agree on an ontology and a set of standards was going to be difficult without it being overly specified so mm -hmm. to, to be really specific i guess yeah so yeah yeah yeah, yeah and and you know the difference also is that TCP is a very, very technical layer of the networking stack. It is something that is well-specified in terms of its goals, right? And those yeah. are all very technical engineering, software engineering-driven goals. But if you, if you move up the networking stack and you get finally to HTTP and the content layer of the networking stack, it actually is a social tool. It's not purely in the realm of technological understanding it also requires understanding of human beings yeah. and of course you know their incentives and we we haven't actually mentioned this so far not only are people lazy people are also going to spam right they're going, they're going to fake yeah. fake content you're going to need content moderation 
Uh, you can imagine that uh, somebody will make a could make a website for some competitor or somebody that they hate and put like a bunch of fake markup and then like what are you going to do what's what's the smart agent going to believe you need some way to basically wrangle conflicting information fake mm -hmm. information etc cetera, etc cetera. and so yeah the social aspect is fundamental to the web and i think that approaching it purely from this ivory tower uh, academic mentality does not bring in the sort of social savvy that is needed when you're dealing with with web products. And I think you you actually wrote a tweet recently, which I, I thought was a <laughs> very, very astute, where you said that the web 3.0 crowd was, a little, was out of touch with human uh, motivations and incentives, whereas the current web 3 crowd is is very much like that's part of web 3 and crypto is designing incentive structures, social structures, the, so this new generation is is much more on it than the that old guard. Yeah, like I think they if if anybody's to take the crown of and title of Web three, it's probably the current crypto crowd because looking beyond the hype and stuff, they're trying to design systems with the correct incentives for a lot of different parties so that the entire thing would work. And because they had to do it from the beginning with an even stronger financial incentive. They've had to like work the stuff out and design what they call uh, token economics, I think is, is yeah. usually what, what that it's not really a field of study. I don't know what you would call I it. I think it it's, should be. It, it, uh, I yeah. think it will be, but yeah. It, would it fall under economics? I don't know. Economics is supposed to like be able to model people as rational actors, but like, yeah, I don't know. Anyways, that's, that's a whole yeah. other thing altogether. So, but like, yeah, the, the crypto people definitely are, are way, way savvier with with the sort of stuff and uh, maybe if they did semantic web from the from in the nine late 90s and 2000s we we'd end up with something so yeah i don't know yeah but you know i think that's a little bit of an unfair expectation of the web 3.0 crowd because it wasn't until the original the, the blockchain original three? yeah the, the original, original oh, web yeah. 3.0 crowd because it wasn't until smart uh, contracts and and cryptocurrency that you could actually have a decentralized economic system for the web. So yeah. I think a lot of these semantic web efforts were trying to align people on this, you know, sense of goodwill and, mm -hmm. you know, community contribution because that's yeah. the only incentive structure that could have existed at that time. There was no mm -hmm. simple way to create financial incentives on the web. Huh. Then maybe this is a startup like listeners out there get on this because now you have like cryptocurrencies as a tool where like people want to put a lot of effort into making a number go up and so maybe you can like harness that energy into generating a knowledge graph i think yeah. it probably it should probably exist i know somebody it, 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 does, exist. Doing, I, it does exist it does exist yeah yeah so so now i think is the right time to, to get into it yeah so there's a <laughs> there's a, a cool startup called golden they they were initially um, going to build a kind of wikipedia that I didn't have as much like high bar of notoriety, right? Where yeah. people, there are a lot of people who are famous on the internet, but they're not on Wikipedia because Wikipedia has like very stringent standards. But anyway, so this company, Golden, is also trying to create a decentralized knowledge graph that incentivizes agents to enter data into the graph. This is from mm -hmm. their website. And so each agent can submit facts to be validated. And if accepted, they will be rewarded tokens. And so that they're directly incentivizing agents. And I guess agents in this case could be human beings, but I suppose it can also be some AI or something like that to submit facts into their knowledge graph. And uh, and then you get economic reward. Mm, yeah, yeah. So uh, I guess this is the 
when when what is it web van turns into instacart and so maybe right. this would be a moment too where yeah. like the stuff finally works we'll we'll see i guess and so that would be pretty interesting if that was available but 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 take a step back before golden was there a place in which uh, like a semantic like effort did work before all the cryptocurrency stuff so there was a startup called metaweb which was creating a knowledge graph also an open knowledge graph so it, it's it's a different from semantic web in that it's it wasn't reliant on markup facts on web page structure but it was similar to semantic web in the idea that everybody collectively curates facts about the world and uh, metaweb eventually got acquired by google and uh, now google uses it extensively to power a lot of their machine learning systems as training data as well as serving that that knowledge graph data to end users if you are to search in in google barack obama height you will actually get a number it won't just search the web for instances of barack obama's height it will actually tell you the fact at the top i think many people are familiar with this by now and uh, that is powered by querying this this knowledge graph which started out being this open source knowledge graph from this company metaweb do you know if that sort of thing could be encoded inside of a, a vector space what do they call it if an embedding like can can you mm. just take knowledge graph and just throw it into like a transformer of some sort and it, it gets encoded into like this hyper dimensional space and embedding and you don't have to worry about it again yeah so i think that actually things are moving in the different direction what people are realizing with transformers is that a lot of these big transformer models like the gpt3 and and whatnot they basically read the entire internet and then like you mentioned, kind of encode all of the knowledge that they read into their weights of, of the machine learning model. Right. But of course, this is a pretty lossy process because they have to pack in a lot of information into this sort of yeah, floating like point the, space. Em the embedding is by 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 nature lossy. Like in order to compress, yeah. it, like it, part of intelligence is knowing what to throw away. So by, by nature, like intelligence is compression. So yeah, exactly, exactly, and so. Things are actually moving in the opposite direction where people are researching increasingly, can we make transformer models that access a structured knowledge graph to refer to certain things? So that when you ask a transformer, like GPT-4 maybe in the future, to tell you facts about the world, rather than it just like conjuring up facts from its memory slash imagination, it will actually be able to reference some database or knowledge graph and say, okay, I've pulled the, the actual pertinent fact and then I will include that fact in my in my response and so it, it's a way to maybe have more accurate factually accurate output from transformers and so yeah the, things are moving more towards that direction actually oh that's kind of interesting because like i i know that when you ask G, gpt3 math questions like two plus two or four plus floor like it 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 has a hard time with that actually because like what it's doing is trying to traverse the embedding like the embedding space to find like a, what comes after um like yeah it doesn't do well on that and so i guess that would be an instance in which you would want the transformer to uh, look up stuff in a stru structured database of some sort to give mm -hmm. you an answer back yeah hmm, weird okay anyways i, I didn't that, that's a tangent if if those of you that want to go back to our transformer episode and learn about transformers all at a high level just pause this video and go to the other one or finish no, this watch one watch this full video so that yeah, yeah right, right. What, what am i <laughs> doing right? i want i want the engagement so anyways 
So then MetaWeb seems to be driving a lot of the search of facts on Google. Were there other instances of successful semantic web things in a limited fashion? Because we know that at large, it, it kind of failed. I think you and I have talked about this just in the course of normal conversation, but I think the only one that is popular are the open graph tags. So these are the tags. Oh, yeah. When, when you when you write a blog post or something that you want like shared on the internet, uh, when you paste a link, uh, for example, into Twitter or Facebook to share it with, with your friends, it'll pull the title of the article, a little blurb, and then maybe a thumbnail, right? And uh, all of that is actually powered by uh, a very light uh, type of semantic web markup called Open Graph. Yeah, and this goes back to what I was saying before, that if you write invisible markup, like people just aren't incentivized to put that in there. But if you put invisible markup that helps you with your distribution, then ah, all of a sudden you're like, I want those fancy looking cards of my wow. website to show up in these uh, search listings, then I'm going to put some of that in there. And that's an example of having the intelligent agent coming up with some sort of like use case that people want in the first place, then they're willing to mark it up. And in fact, I wonder why like more companies don't use markups as part of their API and API documentation, especially if their users, well, I guess maybe part of the reason nowadays is that most users don't write markup anymore, right? Yeah. Like maybe in the days when people had their own blogs, you could do it. Because right now a lot of people just, well, they, they either write on Twitter or they post on Facebook and neither one of those allows you to write markup. But I guess in the days of blogs, it would make sense that if you want your users to be able to use a particular service, then either you have them generate the tags or you yourself, like say WordPress generates the tags for you. And then you would be able to do that. So I don't know, to to eat my own dog food would be a good example. Yeah. I guess if you want distribution for your blog post, eh, I mean, that's, that's kind of similar or like, yeah, I can't come up with anything. <laughs> maybe, that's why, maybe that's why it failed. <laughs> right, right. Even if you try, so, you can't come up with it. No, no, I mean, like, put put on the spot, I'll just come up with, like, dumb th things that will come back to haunt me because these episodes presumably will be here for years and years, and I'm going to have to look back at it, all the stupid things that I said. Yeah. So, yeah. So, so then it, it seems like there are parts of the semantic web that worked pretty well, but I think it's still far from the vision of of the intelligent agents. So how do you surmise that we can get there? Because like, I, I, I would like intelligent agents to help like make appointments or like the equivalent of a travel agent. Cause I can't tell you like how great it was in the beginning of the web when you could find deals and bing, bam, boom, you just book a flight, book a hotel and you're on your way. But now that, you know, like the hotel and airline industry have figured this out. They put all sorts of dark patterns and you spend a lot of time like comparing this with that and trying to subtract out their fees or not have fees. It's just one, it takes hours again. And so I would like it if there was an intelligent agent to kind of set that stuff up for me, given the constraints that I give it, right? Yeah. I think that's that part of the vision is still remains very compelling. I would say that now we're at a state of AI, going back to the symbolic AI versus statistical machine learning, the pendulum has clearly swung in favor of statistical machine learning, of which you know transformers are a descendant or an, ex an instance. And so you know, transformers are excellent at understanding natural language. 
that's what they were built to do. And mm -hmm. so now I don't see the need for semantic agents to consume structured markup. I think yeah. it's possible that you can just set unleash these uh, smart agents that are based on transformers, and they're able to parse what's already user visible. So they can they can parse natural language and be able to to maybe take action on that. And so rather than you know the the restaurant owner going back to our canonical example, doing all this extra work, you could take a transformer model and say, here is this input web page. Can you parse it and tell me do they serve a, a particular dish in their menu or at what time do they close? Are they open on Sundays? And it will just be able to answer that from the user-visible, human-readable text on the web page as it is. How would you control the, what is it, false positives or false negatives? I mean, because like these statistical methods have an error rate built into them. Unlike like if you're looking at structured data, if it's there, it's there. If it's not, then it's not. And so yeah. how would that work I, I guess the agent yeah. would come up with a list of steps kind of like how sql has an explain command to say how, how did i got get here and so i guess yeah. you as a human would approve all the steps that it came up with and so you can kind of double check i guess if you wanted to that the price was actually that and and kind of have a human in the loop to approve at the very end yeah i think that's going to be an important part of it if you're if you're talking about semantic agents that are actually performing some action right like yeah, okay i'm right. going to book a flight based on you know, uh, uh, some price that it parsed out of. You know, <laughs> right. Flight, flight be, be, yeah. Because as, as we know on Amazon, every once in a while, they'll try to sell like, I don't know, a Nintendo Wii for like $30,000 just because there's some glitch in their system about for pricing, right? Yeah, right. So he, yeah. you don't want to be caught up in just paying $30,000 for one of those things. Yeah, exactly. So I think due, there's... Due to there's, your intelligent agent. Oh, sorry, due to in, your intelligent, intelligent agent. Right, yeah. because like in the financial world, you have all these like agents that do the trading for you and people have lost like hundreds of millions of dollars because they decided to run one of these things with a bug in it and i don't know who gets fired over that sort of stuff but like right. that's uh, what did they lose like it was in the hundreds of millions i forgot the exact thing Ke kevlin henny likes to harp on this point if i'll find it and put it in the show notes cool yeah yeah i think another step towards uh, these transformer based intelligent agents is that currently the Transformer-based natural language uh, models don't know how to tell you, I don't know. More uh, often than not, if you ask a question, <laughs> they'll just make up something. Yeah, right? they'll just make like, up something. And so I think that increasingly there are research efforts into grounding these models, which means that they are they refer to external sources, like we mentioned, whether that is a, a database or a knowledge graph or just a set of web pages that it has retrieved from a search engine. And then the grounding part is making the model aware that it is referencing a specific uh, information that it's reading somewhere, or if it's unable to find that information, it uh, being sort of self-aware enough to say, yeah, I don't know, I couldn't find that information for you, uh, rather than just like making some stuff up. Huh, that's interesting, because like the use cases where you want AI to help you generate like fiction or like movies or something like that, I guess yeah. you don't want to ground them in anything. So they come up with all sorts of crazy ass things. But I guess if you want like a booking agent, then yeah, you, you want them to be grounded in some sort of reality there. <laughs> right. Yeah. So I think that, you know, intelligent agents that consume knowledge from the open web, still feasible. I think that the technology has caught up on 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 that end so yeah i think i think it, it could be possible and then i think you know if and that's going coming at it from make the agents be able to parse yeah unstructured data and i think like of course we mentioned efforts like golden and 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 maybe 
other cryptocurrency efforts where you can think about the possibility that we're actually going to do this with structured data, but then properly incentivizing people in, in order to actually moderate and curate the set of facts in, uh, about the world. Yeah, so I was going to mention that, and I'm glad we're uh, on the same wavelength here. Like, What are the economic incentives that would help encourage the adding of correct factual data to this knowledge graph and dissuade, I guess, spammers? I, I guess that's a large question that would be bigger than this episode, but I guess it's just yeah. an open question thinking out loud. Yeah, I think that there needs to be some compelling reason for people to want to add data into the knowledge graph. I'm thinking that... Well, making money would be one, I guess. Yeah, ma- making money would be one. But I mean, ultimately, like, okay, the, the, the network can be doling out tokens to people but at the end of the day it also has to provide some inherent value to the world area what value would it provide where are these tokens deriving their fundamental value and i think what is what are they what's the word based on there's a specific financial term for it backed by (laughs) what are they backed by by? yeah yeah Yeah, exactly and i think that can we get a knowledge graph that is expansive as expansive as wikipedia that you know says all kinds yeah. of facts about the entire world yeah maybe i mean maybe. the golden folks are trying to well, do that certainly but well so so like there are parts of the web where like people do that without financial incentives i mean like people list like every episode of i don't know game of thrones and annotate like every time that people get killed or like i don't know whatever yeah. like all sorts of stuff right. like fandom is like huge thing and they just put out these or like the if you've ever like played minecraft and look at the minecraft wiki like it's just so so yeah. detailed like who spends right. all their time well I, yeah i mean kids and college students they have plenty of time to do all this, all of this sort of stuff i mean so, the, so this the fan the idea of fandom actually is is very relevant here because you know i've so far been thinking about the idea that the incentives have to be backed by some type of economic value right so yeah, transactions for, for class of things right but i'm saying like when we we're talking about like the universe of knowledge stuff like there's some yeah. things that are very well tuned to economic incentives and then the other stuff is well tuned to like fandom right yeah but the yeah. interesting thing about about you know, crypto web 3 is that increasingly there are tokens and measures of value that are measures of social value not just economic value so i can yeah. imagine if you are a member of some fandom yeah. then you're you know uh, annotating in this knowledge graph like all of the you know when some game of thrones character died and you, then you got paid in game of thrones coin or whatever and that shows that you're like super expert in that thing maybe people would want to do that only if there are people that admire you for having that badge whether uh, yeah like i guess if which i assume other game of thrones people yeah, maybe yeah. right like yeah like, or, wow, you or have so many be, got coins or whatever yeah like a status symbol amongst them or like for love interests of whatever gender you're into like are yeah. into that then then that might be a thing too yeah it's yeah. it's interesting there's a whole subfield of nfts that are all about these sort of like social token sort of stuff and yeah like i, I can imagine them doing this sort of stuff but then or, how about or this, like oh, what oh i was thinking what? that Imagine that the you know creator of Game of Thrones has an NFT whose price is entirely denominated in a Game of Thrones coin, and the only way that you could buy that NFT is by uh, earning yeah. Game of Thrones uh, coins through doing this type of community service. Then you know you'd be able to buy something cool. 
yeah there's some like uh, you'd have to consider a lot of different angles because like normally these tokens can be traded on exchanges so does it matter yeah. if you can earn these tokens and then trade it to somebody like maybe that's just part of the work and it doesn't really matter who ends up with the reward like maybe i mean if people yeah. are willing to grind world of warcraft for some like gold in order to make a living then maybe this is a perfectly adequate way to earn a living also like yeah you, you don't care about game of thrones but you're willing to do the work so that actual game of thrones fans don't have to yeah maybe i mean that that's how that's how uh you know specialization and economics work right, right? Like, right, right. <laughs> you kind of delegate responsibility <laughs> to whoever is willing to do it yeah so, so then what about the stuff in the middle because there's like a whole class of things where like it's not exactly motivated by economics but then like it's not motivated by fandom either like what's an example yeah. of that what are people like, not fans of like like boring things like that that has nothing roads. to do with business <laughs> like yeah like what are the names of the streets uh in a city or something you know something uh, like but that. you have like those open street map fans maybe you yeah. can find fans for most anything it's for, just for the, anything yeah <laughs> yeah i mean there are there are people who like uh, ha buy very complicated equipment to track planes like the location of yeah. planes and things and like they they maintain those websites so there's like i think yeah. anything actually can you can you and maybe the hypothesis is you can create a fandom for anything, even supposedly like very boring things. Yeah, I mean, people track trains and like their websites devoted to like which train came on which railroad at which hour and stuff like that. Yeah. So, yeah, but no, but I, I mean, I agree. I, I think that's a bit of an extreme. Like, certainly there are some fascinating things that seem boring to people, but then are very interesting to a subset of people. But yeah, I think there are definitely going to be some things that are just straight up boring slash like they're not a hobby of anybody um like yeah whatever like what is the density of like various materials in the world and like i don't yeah. think big density fans yeah <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah. like i was hard pressed like before the internet yeah. came up i would be like there's a whole huge class of things that people find completely boring to, but then now that having lived on the internet for two decades I'm like yeah i'm hard pressed to think of stuff yeah maybe yeah. like the specific heat of different materials or something i don't yeah. know but yeah, yeah. i don't know yeah, so, so there's probably going to be gaps. And then maybe... Maybe that's that, where you... Yeah, just... Yeah, I don't know what it is. You, you either don't have it, or you some some entity in whose interest it is to kind of complete... Maintain the completeness completely of the, the same, strap. Yeah, yeah they, they actually pay people, like, real money to collect this yeah. kind of boring data or something like that. Mm, yeah, yeah. Oh, also, also, I think there's an opportunity for agents who are not not humans... So AI agents to maybe parse this information from web pages and other content on the web and then submit it to the graph for, for money. So you can have like AI agents. Your favorite idea is AI agents yeah. that can hold their own and make their own money and whatever. And right. like, this is a job. Buy an apartment made. and own yeah. a dog and uh, eventually apply for citizenship. Yeah, yeah. I'm yeah, exactly. <laughs> so so one path for, for uh, that is AI agents that are doing the boring work that humans don't want to do and filling in all the, the gaps in the knowledge graph. Yeah, and there's probably a like whole another tangent we can go to into like adversarial agents that are injecting these things, or like if there are political like state actors that are trying yeah. to do that. Yeah, recently I've been listening to a lot of frontline Putin and his like misinformation campaign. I'm like, oh okay, like that. I I kind of understand the some of the dynamics there, and definitely like the adversarial actors definitely throw a wrench into these sort of efforts if if it is a means of uh, control and a way to hold on to political power for for these parties so yeah well actually I, I wanted to ask you about this because you've actually worked in this like there are crypto web3 structures where you can basically moderate 
information and i'm thinking of the of tcrs like token right. registries right and right. like do you think that that technology is a viable way to maintain moderation in a knowledge graph i think the difficult part of the tcrs was that so tcrs just to explain to to our listeners real quick stands for token curated registries basically it's like a top 10 list that are maintained by people that are incentivized by earning tokens so you can imagine like a i don't know like a list of best restaurants in the bay area or, or something like that or like mm -hmm. the list of presidents and so in the first one it's more opinion based and the second one is uh, more factual and so i think the difficulty when i was working on it was that there are some things that are factual that align very well with it being clear uh, as to what belonged on the list or not. And so it was easy mm. to figure out how to incentivize and punish and dissuade those people from like putting crap on the list. But like those kinds of facts are actually few and far between. Like uh, even things that we consider facts can be viewed differently by different people. Like a, a good case in point is like geography. There's so many contested parts of the, the world and mm -hmm. geographically that like people would have different versions of the list and they would be incentivized like incentivized to effectively be bad actors for that and so does it make sense that the largest token holders would effectively dominate because the assumption there is that if they have earned those tokens then they did good work previously to maintain that list but if you have the same token across different types of lists just because one person did a good job curating one list doesn't necessarily mean that they are going to do a good job curating a different set of facts and then yeah. also one of the things about web3 and cryptocurrencies is that some of these tokens are fungible so that you can trade them to other people so does it yeah. make sense that you could trade the things that you earn by curating a good list to other people that haven't necessarily done that work and then if it can't yeah. be tradable like how can you have a transfer of value and so so there were a lot of these difficult questions that we weren't able to answer in the short time that we were like looking into the space and working on it and so i think there's some version of this that will work because all the buzzy things that you hear on the cryptocurrency stuff of like they've been around for a long time like people in yeah. cryptocurrency don't just come up with a new thing to scam you out of your money yeah. every time so like nft's <laughs> been around for a while and then like people found it figured out what it was for and yeah. applications and then it, it kind of blew up like they just invented to scam people out of their money same thing with DAOs. like DAOs yeah. like failed and crashed significantly had a kind of a short winter for like maybe two or three years before they came yeah. back like recently where people are interested in them again. And I think it would be the same for TCRs. It's just, I don't know exactly what that looks like because as I've outlined, like there's, there's a couple issues with like how it would actually work because even mm. things that are factual can be nuanced, especially when you have different parties. It goes back to the problem that like the people in the semantic web didn't address. Like different people have different views and schemas on the same sort of thing. And so how do you deal with that? Yeah. Maybe versioning TCRs is one thing or like everybody that believes the same kind of thing can have their own TCR and you as a reader would be yeah. able to merge or pick and choose from them. So you could draw from various different sources to get a corroborated list sort of thing. So it, it doesn't yeah. matter that for one particular topic such as like 
what are the best restaurants in the Bay Area? So maybe all sorts of different groups would would maintain that list and you would read it and then give different weights to, to these different lists to come up with your own list when you're reading them. So, yeah. so that sort of thing. That's a little bit of a long answer, I guess, for a podcast about like semantic web, but I guess TCRs are the crypto version of the semantic web, except yeah. they call it a list rather than a graph. But you could yeah. presumably just link these uh, lists together in order to get a knowledge graph. So right. yeah, I mean, look out for it. TCRs. T TCRs for the semantic web. You hear it. Yeah, yeah, first. yeah. yeah. <laughs> Buzz, buzzworthy. Buzzworthy. Yeah. Get on it, listeners. This is another startup, I guess. Yeah, exactly. Cool. Yeah. I mean, I. <laughs> This is another episode that I think I was not expecting us to go on as long as, as we have, but I think yeah. that <laughs> this is a very, very influential, I guess, a topic, or or rather it is steeped in a lot of other related topics. It, it relates to AI, it relates to the, to the rise of the web, it relates to humans and incentive structures and things like that. And so obviously we've explored all those different paths. And I think that, I mean, it's, it's an interesting problem space. Like I think that many careers and companies and things could be made off of maybe parceling off some subset of the vision of semantic yeah. web and then doing it, getting it right. Right. Yeah. Like I, I have to admit, like maybe you and I just bring out both the, the chattiness, the best and the worst of each of us. So that's why we go on and on about things. But yeah, like before when I was about to, I was all ready to say like, this is dead. There's nothing of value here. Like move on. There's nothing here to see. But, but like after chatting, I'm like, oh, okay. Like definitely, I think there's just something here that you need to kind of dig out because like right now, semantic web is just unfashionable. And so that's why, like people aren't looking at it or working on it, but I think like there's a gem of something in here, like after mm -hmm. we kind of talked about it. And I think that's what I'm getting at that. Like you really like a need diamond to in the rough kind of thing. Yeah. Cause people like put through it in the mud. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was going to, I was going to say something else, but yeah, like I think there's, there's something to be dusted off there. Cause I, yeah. like I said, I was originally going to just kind of write it off completely. There's, there's like a core of, of something there that, that is useful. Like forget all the implementation that came before. Like that's, probably not it but like there's there's a gem of something there yeah i think you know we've done a few of these retro tech episodes now in the season and let us know what you think about retro future episodes we can maybe consider continuing doing them oh yeah out to that one user that commented along while he was reading I'm, I'm sorry i forgot your name but we definitely appreciate that so like anybody that has insightful comments either corrections or otherwise uh, let us know and yes please insightful comments only otherwise it would make us very sad yes so. yeah yeah so i think you know we, we've we've done a few of these uh, retro episodes and i think that there are two types of retro that we've covered uh, you can think about Corba, where we said, well, that was a flaming pile of garbage and nobody should ever go in that direction ever again. And then on the other one is, uh, for example, Smalltalk, where it was yeah. like, well, it, it failed, but like there's a, there's a lot of you know conceptual value here to still be mined. And my take after this conversation is that the semantic web is closer to the Smalltalk end of the spectrum and not on the Corba end of the spectrum. What, what, but you what have you to dust off. I, I think you'd have to dust it. For me, it sits a little bit in the middle. You have to dust off a lot of the implementation stuff and just throw it away, but like go for like what what was the aspiration or, or like the core vision and see like based based on the advantage of having uh, what 20 years of, of being in the future <laughs> that you can look back and see how you can improve upon the vision based on the future technology that you have today. Yeah, yeah, totally. Well, with that, 
we have we have talked to everybody's ear off at, at this point and uh, so we hope you know you enjoyed learning about this it's a very fascinating topic and and with that we are closing out the season season two of the technique oh yeah yeah it's season two is done can you believe it that's that's yeah. crazy it just seemed to fly by we we're just having too much fun but yeah, yeah i'm glad that we were able to close it out with on a positive note well semi-positive but generally saying yeah, yeah thumbs up so so that's good uh, yeah so to our viewers if you please just subscribe what, what was the phrase that we have we still don't have an outro even though we have an intro what, what do we say yeah you always say shellacca subscribe yeah i got that from felicia day but uh shellacca subscribe or something like that share like and subscribe yeah something like that yeah and 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 also yeah like will said uh definitely comment along it's actually really fun for us to have people to interact with because otherwise it just feels like we're shouting into the void so we're glad that we have listeners who are are commenting and uh, we, we hope to hear from you more yeah and so we at the end of season two we're going to be on a small hiatus for a couple of weeks uh, prepping for our season three which will be bigger faster stronger with more production improvements and so we hope to see you there at next season season three Sri, do you have anything to say to our listeners in anticipation for season three we are going to be taking a hiatus but uh, between now and season three we are going to try to put out some more digestible pieces of content uh, summarizing uh, little clips of you know the interesting moments of our our best episodes and so yeah stay stay subscribed but we still have plenty more to to share with you right yeah so because as 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 the internet says ain't nobody got time to listen to an hour and 30 minutes of two guys <laughs> rambling all the time so yeah. we'll, we'll make some more digestible pieces so with that i got nothing else what about you no that's it yeah cool all right thanks for listening See ya. yeah and so this is will and this is street See you next season. Bye-bye.